Welcome to Fort William Baptist Church Audio Sermons. We're so glad you could join with us today. This fall, we have begun a new sermon series called Soteriology. During this series, we will aim to unpack how our God applies salvation to sinful men and women. We are returning to the great doctrines of a sustained and refreshed Christ Church since the days of the Apostles. With the great works of God before us, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification, our hearts will be stirred up to hunger more of the work of God. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. It's good to be with you this morning as we look into the Word, and we know that God is at work. We see it this morning. His grace is powerful, and we can expect to experience His grace as we handle His Word. So as you turn to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at Isaiah 43, and we're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 21. So we're in this series on salvation, soteriology, and this morning we're looking at the doctrine of perseverance. So if you're there in the book of Isaiah, let's give our attention to God's good words. Hear the word of the Lord. But now thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. And also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send the Babylon and bring them down, bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. 
They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Father, we do cast ourselves upon you this morning. You are the Lord. You are the only God. And we call upon you, won't you work this morning? We long for your precious work in our souls that we might believe and continue to believe. And so we pray this morning that you would cast aside all hindrances, all distractions, because we want to hear from you. So draw near, we pray. We pray this in your son's glorious name. Amen. We're going to start with a story this morning. We've started with a few stories in the sermon series. And so we're going to transport back a few hundred years. And so what should have been fairly routine turned out to be deadly. Smallpox was flaring up once again in Princeton, and Jonathan Edwards, the the new president of the, the College of New Jersey, had never had the disease before. And so smallpox was this deadly disease, and at that time in history, about one in six, I believe, who contracted it ended up dying from it. But there was a way to lower this absurd ratio, and that would be to get inoculated. And so the process of inoculation was fairly simple. A doctor would come along and and make a small incision between the thumb and the, the index finger, and then the doctor would take some infected matter and apply it into the incision. So what would usually happen is that that patient would then experience some mild symptoms of the disease and then recover, and the result would be that that person would be shielded from the full force of smallpox. So Edwards called the doctor, and the doctor inoculated him, but all did not go well for Edwards. He received the inoculation, and like other patients, he, he started to get symptoms, and he, he rallied through the symptoms, and all thought was well. But then somehow the, the, the smallpox spread into his mouth and into his, his throat. And if you can imagine the blisters in your mouth and in your throat, and so he could no longer eat and, and swallow, and then fever took a hold, and that's how he, he died. And so this whole matter of Edward's death was a tragedy. It was a tragedy on many levels. As you think about it, Edwards was only 54 years old, and his death touched the church Smallpox struck him when he was at the height of his pastoral and and theological powers. He was a a great writer. He wrote many books. And because of his early, untimely death, no more books would be written by his pen. He was a, a profound speaker and preacher. And because of his early death, he would never mount the pulpit again and preach God's word to God's people again. And in fact, he was taking over the College of New Jersey to do what? To train men for the ministry, for gospel ministry. And because of this untimely death, no one would be trained by Edwards. And even more, his death touched his family. He had a wife, he had children, he had grandchildren. It was a tragedy. And I tell you all of this about Edwards for a purpose because I want to focus in on his deathbed 
scene. So in that day, if you attended a deathbed scene, you would you'd pay careful attention to what the person is saying. And you would likely write those words down because you want to preserve them for posterity's sake. And so what Edward said on his deathbed has been recorded for us. And so we can go back and, and listen to what he was saying. And so what I want to do is I want to give you three quotes from his, his deathbed, and we need to think about them. So here's the first quote. In this first quote, he's speaking to his daughter, Lucy, and he's speaking to his daughter, Lucy, because he wants her to go to the rest of the family and and speak to them on his behalf. So this is what he says to his daughter. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has long subsisted between us, has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under this great trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now like to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. That's what Edward just wants his his family to hear from him. And so right after that, there's a a second quote. So the first quote is Edward speaking to his family. The second quote is Edward's expressing what's in his own soul. And so he says this. Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? After these two quotes... Edwards is unconscious for a period of time, and and if you've been at a deathbed scene before, sometimes folks rally for a bit, and they have a moment of consciousness, and they speak again, and this is what happened to Edwards, and so these were his last words in our third quote, and after these words, he he met the Lord Jesus, and so he, he rallied, and he said this, trust in God, trust in God, and you need not fear. So just process these words with me for a moment. Here we are at Edward's deathbed and we're listening to what he says. What do you hear from him? Is there a theme that unites these words? And I think there's an answer to this and the answer is faith. Just think about the words we have heard. He's, he's looking to his family. He wants to minister to them. And what is he pressing on them? He's, he's pressing on them faith. He's calling for, for more faith from them. As he looks to his wife, he says, submit cheerfully to the will of God. He looks to his children and he says, seek a father who will never fail you. And then in this deathbed scene, Edward's soul is expressed. And what do we hear of his soul? We hear faith. He says, now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never failing friend? That's faith. Where's Jesus? I want him. I need him. And then to whoever would listen to him as he rallied from his unconscious state, he says, trust in God and you have no need to fear. We hear of faith in this deathbed scene. And this is something to think about. So think about Edward's life. He became a Christian. When he became a Christian, he received the faith. He became a pastor. And as a pastor, what did he do? He preached the faith. He was a, a theologian and a scholar. And as a, a theologian and a scholar, he did what? He, he wrote about the faith. But we he, see here at the end of his life, Edwards did what? He, he died in the faith. And this deathbed scene drives home an important point. 
your faith, if it is a true and saving faith, must persevere until the very end. And this needs to be put in the starkest of terms possible. The faith of your childhood means nothing. The faith of your university years means nothing. The faith of your middle-aged years means nothing if you do not die in that faith. It is not enough to have faith for a moment or for a season or even for a decade. You must keep the faith until you see Jesus face to face. And this is an urgent matter. You must keep the faith. You must keep the faith. Everything depends upon this. And Jesus himself affirms these stark statements, and he gives us a stark statement of his own. As Jesus was speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he says this, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You've got to endure. That's the only way. But as we think about these stark calls, the only faith that matters is the faith that we die with. And we start to think about our lives, we, we, we start to understand that this is a daunting task for us because everything in this world militates against us keeping the faith. Think about it. There's persecution, and persecution is like the hot sun. It scorches faith, and it causes faith to wither and dry up into nothing. There's the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of, of riches. There's the desires for other things. And they're like this aggressive weed and they come and they, they choke out faith. They just crowd it out. There's no room for the plant of faith to, to grow up. And then there's Satan himself to consider. Jesus tells us that he's like a, a bird. The seed is scattered on the hard path and he comes and he, he plucks up the word before it can take root in the heart. And so the circumstances we find ourselves in this world do not bode well for us because our present environment is harsh and inhospitable. But as we think about our present lives, the matter only gets worse when we consider ourselves. When we stop thinking about our circumstances and we start to eye up our own souls. First of all, we are weak creatures. The scriptures teach us that we're just dust. We're not full of strength. We're not full of power. The scriptures speak of us like this. As for man, his days are like grass. He, he flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Here for a moment and then gone. And on top of this weak state we live in, we are our sinful creatures. It's just not that we live in this inhospitable environment. We, we do, but we ourselves are part of the problem in this struggle. For perseverance, we struggle not just against persecution, not just against Satan, not just against temptation, but we fight against our very selves. There's this, this war at work in our hearts, righteousness against sin. And with all of these factors accounted for, it should not surprise us that there are many who do not make it to the end. We find examples that sober us up in the scriptures. We find Judas. Judas was among the 12. He followed Jesus. He fellowshiped with Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He did ministry in the power of the Spirit with Jesus. But his faith did not make it to the end. And he was lost forever. We find demons. He came into contact with Paul and he began to help Paul with his ministry endeavors. He was with Paul as he planted churches. He was with Paul preaching the gospel, yet he deserted the faith for the love of the world. 
And as we think about it, this is not just a remote historical issue. We're painfully aware of those who once professed the faith, but now want nothing to do with Jesus. We used to pray with them. We used to serve with them. We used to fellowship with them. We used to teach to them, and they might have taught us. But now they're gone, and so is their their faith. And all of this begs the question, We must persevere to the end and everything militates against us keeping the faith. And so we ask, well, how do we get to the end with our faith intact? How do we navigate this this minefield that we find ourselves in without getting blown into smithereens? There's temptation, there's Satan, there's suffering and persecution. How can we get to our deathbeds and have faith like Edwards had, expressing our souls? Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? I want to speak like that. How can I do that? How is that possible? Well, the answers to our questions come when we look at the doctrine of perseverance. So I want to give you a definition as we start. So here's the doctrine. Saints, and what I mean by saints are those truly united to Jesus. Those called, regenerated, justified, sanctified by the Father, these ones, saints, will infallibly persevere unto the end. Their faith will not give way. Their faith will not falter because God himself keeps them to the very end. If you're paying attention to that definition, there's two components to it. First, there's a description in that definition of the true Christian. What is the true Christian? The true Christian is the one who endures to the end, the one who keeps the faith until death. In the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of temptation, even in the midst of sin, dare we say, the Christian presses on in the faith, not letting go of Jesus, but holding to the promises of the gospel. So there's a definition of the Christian here, but there's also a promise here. There's good news here. And the good news is this, God himself keeps the Christian. Faith remains. Why? Because God sees to it that it will remain even in the midst of all of these trials and difficulties, temptations, and sins. Not one of God's saints, not one of God's elect will perish. As Jesus himself says in the Good Shepherd Discourse, no one will snatch them out of my hands. So we can just state this really succinctly. We can say this. God saves sinners. How? By keeping them. God saves sinners by keeping them. And we can apply this to ourselves. God saves me. How does God save me? He saves me by keeping me. God saves you. How does he save you? He saves you by by keeping you. And so in light of this, I want to ask a very practical question. How does God keep us? What does it look like for God to keep us? What does it look like for the good shepherd to keep us in his fold? Practically speaking, what does that look like? And so let's turn to the book of Isaiah because we're going to find answers here. So if there were a people ever struggling with the keeping power of God, it was the people who were reading Isaiah 43. The original audience. In fact, that's a very mild way to put it. The people who received this prophecy were, were greatly struggling with the keeping power of God. Their, their hearts were filled with doubts and their, and their faith was, was wavering. As we think about it, there's really good reason for all of this struggle. Everything had gone wrong for these people. 
They were prisoners of a, of a powerful nation. Their ancestral homes and cities were, were destroyed. They were far away from home. And they knew that all of these troubling circumstances were due to a particular reason. The Lord had brought all of these things upon them. Why? Because of their continued unrepentant sin. So they're in the midst of these terrible circumstances and they know it's because of them. And so we ask, What's the Lord going to do with these people? How is he going to keep their faith? And the answer is really not that complex. It's on display in chapter 43. In fact, it's on display throughout the whole book of Isaiah. God keeps his people, how? By revealing himself to them. That's the whole strategy of perseverance. And we see it summed up in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Listen to this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what? Behold your God. See him. How does God keep sinners? How is God going to keep us? How is God going to keep you? He's going to keep you by revealing himself to you. And this is incredibly clarifying for the Christian life. Perseverance is a matter of seeing God for who he is in the scriptures. And what God promises, even more what God does for us, is he graciously reveals himself to us. And there's a simple application for us that we're going to work through this whole sermon. Christian, the most important thing you can do in your life is labor, strive to see God. That's the most important thing. If you want to persevere to the end, if you want to be able to speak like Jonathan Edwards, you need to labor and sweat to see God. And this is what Isaiah 43 does for us. It brings God near to us. And so I want to go and see God in Isaiah 43. And I want to point out to you four matters about our God that will, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear in this moment will cause our faith to persevere. We're not just not going to talk about perseverance this morning. God is going to do his work of perseverance this morning in our hearts. So here's the first matter I want you to see. You need to see God's presence. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. But now thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. We can learn a lot about Israel's situation by just reading these words, floods, fires, not a pleasant situation. And we learn here in these first two verses, God does not promise ease to his people. No, we see that there are rivers that have to be crossed and there are fiery trials that have to be endured. And we can confirm this from our own life. There is suffering to be had. And we've got to muddle our way through it. But listen to the truth about God because God does give a promise. While he does not promise ease to his people, he promises this. In the midst of the rivers, in the midst of the fire, God says this, I will be with you. I will be with you. And we have to work away at the significance of these words. What does it mean for God to be with his people? 
Well, with these words, God is not promising when the hard times hit that he's going to show up at our door with a, a hot dish and a Hallmark card. That's nice, but that's not what God is saying. When God says, I'm going to be with you, He's not giving us a pat on the back. Rather, he is doing something different. We see in the text that God being with us does something for us. And what does it do? He is with his people, so what? The waters do not overwhelm them. He is with his people, so the fires do not consume them. God's presence is a a saving, powerful presence. In fact, if God is not with his people, then all hope is lost. I'm reminded of the scene in Exodus chapter 33. The Lord is talking with Moses. And there's this prospect that the Lord will not go with Israel anymore because of their sin. And what does Moses say? He pleads with the Lord because he knows if if the presence of the Lord is not with his people, there is no life anymore. And so Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. There's no point of us continuing this journey if you are not with us because your presence is life. If we lack your presence, that means death. And so we ask, well, how does God keep us? Well, he comes to us in the scriptures and he graciously opens up our eyes and he reminds us, I am with you. I am the life-giving God. You need to see this and know this. That's the first matter. The second matter we need to see, we need to see God's affections for his people. So look at verses three and four. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. These are glorious verses. Behold your God. Our God is not a God who keeps his affections locked away. He does not keep them hidden from us. But what do we see? He he opens up his affections to us in the scriptures. Here the Lord is dealing with these sinful, exiled people. And what does he come to them? What does he say to them? He says this, you are, are precious in my eyes. Honored. And I love you. And he does not only speak about his love, but he reveals the depth of his love. He says, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. What the Lord is saying is, I will trade the whole continent of Africa for you, my people. I put the whole continent of Africa and you on a scale and you are far more precious to me than that whole landmass and all the riches there. And if we have our minds trained by the gospel, these words that we find in Isaiah 43 are just a foretaste of what we see revealed in the gospel of Jesus. Because when we look into the gospel of Jesus, we see the burning love of God. There we see the unfathomable depth of love that God has for sinners. A love so great that he would give up his only son for fallen sinners. That's unfathomable love. And doesn't this strengthen our faith? Doesn't this cause us to hang on to Jesus for another day? And we need this kind of thinking. We need these words because sometimes we think that the Lord is just putting up with us. 
And we think this way about the Lord, that he's just putting up with us, because that's the way we often think. We get put into all of these relationships, and people grind on us, and they disturb us, and we just have to put up with them because we just can't get rid of them. There's not a love operating in our hearts where we just yearn from them. We're just putting up with them. And so what happens is we impute our situations on the Lord. If that's how I'm operating with all of these people in my life, that must be how the Lord is operating with me, especially because I'm a a sinner. But here is the Lord, and he does not deal with us like that. Rather, what does he say? He says, you are precious in my eyes, you are honored, and I love you. No, this Lord is not putting up with you if you are in Christ Jesus. He is not putting up with you. Rather, as you can see in these two verses, he is drawing us near because he wants us to bask in his affections for us. He wants us to know the value he has placed upon us. He wants us to revel in this free grace. And so he gives us these precious words. He opens up his heart to us. So how does God keep us? He opens up his heart to us and he puts it on display in the scriptures and not only in the scriptures, but in history. Behold the death and resurrection of the Son of God. God is saying, I love you. Third matter. We need to see God's purpose. So verses five and seven. Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now look down at verses 18 through 21. Remember not the former things. Nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. These are strange verses, aren't they? Isaiah is talking about geography. So he, he lists the four cardinal directions. There's the north, there's the south, there's the east, there's the west. He talks about the wilderness. He talks about rivers. He talks about deserts and other verses. He talks about seas. And then Isaiah starts talking about animals. He starts talking about jackals and ostriches and wild beasts. What is he talking about? We're looking for the character of God here. Maybe we should skip these verses because I'm just not seeing it here. But we can't skip these verses because they're precious, and they're precious because they reveal God's purpose. And so we ask, well, what is God up to in this world? What is he getting done? Well, God is telling us in these odd verses this. He is undertaking a worldwide exodus. What is God doing right now? He's drawing together a people from all over the globe, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. Remember the first exodus the Lord drew near to Egypt and he drew his people out and what Isaiah is saying is the Lord is doing a second exodus but it's not just from Egypt it's from the entire world he is gathering a people for himself and if you remember the first exodus there was this this journey that the people had to take they had to cross the the sea the Lord made a way for them through the sea and then they had to go through the desert a place of death 
But what does God say in the second exodus? He is going to meet them there. And what is he going to do? He's going to turn this desert into a paradise. And so we ask, what is God doing? Why another exodus? Why a trip through the wilderness? Why this talk about making a way through the sea? Well, it's this. We see God's purpose. What is God's purpose? He is gathering a people for himself. That is what God has his heart set on, that he might have a people for his own glory and that we might be able to lay claim to him. And this is a great drama that our lives are caught up in. We are in the middle of a worldwide exodus. It's happening right now. And the Lord wants us to know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. He wants us to know it about every part of our lives, our jobs, our marriages, our families, our hobbies, are caught up in his great purpose that he might have a people for himself. So how does God keep our faith? He reminds us what's going on in this world that he is gathering a people for himself and that you are one of those people. And he's gathering you so that you might dwell with him and you might have him as your God forever. This brings us to the fourth matter we need to see about God. We need to see his sovereign power. Verses 8 through 13. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. And also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn back? So just think about all that the Lord has revealed to us in Isaiah 43 about Himself. He's revealed his presence to us. I will be with you. My presence is life-giving. It is a saving presence. He's revealed his affections to us. He has said to us, I love you. It's revealed in the gospel to us. And he's also revealed his purpose. I am gathering you. But we need to think hard about all of these truths. None of these truths matter if God doesn't have the strength or the power or the ability to get these things done. What, God, what good is God's near presence to us if he can't actually save us? What good is God's love for us if it can't keep our faith? What good is his purpose to, to gather, of, gather us together if he can't get it done? What does God do here? He greets us with the truth of his absolute sovereignty over all things. God's presence matters. God's love matters. God's purposes matter because they are filled with his mighty, sovereign power. In these verses, the Lord does a gracious thing. He defines for his people what it means for him to be God. It means that when he sets out a purpose, that purpose will be accomplished. It means that when God says something is going to happen, that is what happens. Or as Isaiah puts it, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn back? As we think about it, this is the truth that we need to hear. 
believer, hear this and understand this. God makes plans and all of them are accomplished. Whatever your God sets his heart on, that is what is going to be done. No power in heaven, no power on earth can thwart his plans. No one can stand up in his way and say, no, Yahweh, I will thwart your plans. No one can stop this almighty, powerful God. And so as we consider our faith and the call to endure to the end, what will give us rest? Believe it, there is no rest for your soul anywhere else but God. Don't look to yourself today. Don't look at your own strength, your own resiliency, your own power. Don't look there because there's no rest for your, your soul there. Don't look to your friends because there's no rest there. Don't look to your, your stuff because there's no rest there. Only look to the God who has said, I work and who can turn back? And believer, here is the good news that greets us here. This God will guard your soul from Satan. This God will guide you through the maze of temptations that you face each and every day. This God will sustain you in the midst of trial and persecution. This God will keep you. He can keep you because he is the sovereign, powerful God. He works and no one can turn back. So there's the four truths about God that we need to see. The four matters. I want to close this sermon off by just rehearsing the truth together and then landing on one simple exhortation. So the first truth is this. The only faith that matters is the faith you die with. The only faith that matters is the faith you die with. You might keep faith for 20 years, but if you don't die with faith, it doesn't matter. All is lost. If you can't say with Edwards at the very end, now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never failing, all hope is lost. You need faith. It needs to remain. So that's the first truth. The second truth is this. God keeps all of his children. God keeps all of his children. No one will snatch them out of his hands. And that's a glorious truth to consider. And third truth is this, God's principal way of keeping us is by revealing himself to us. God keeps us by revealing his presence, by revealing his power, by revealing his purposes, by revealing his affections for us. And so this leads us to the exhortation. You need to keep faith to the end. We've got that. God's going to keep us. We've got that, so what do we need to do? What's the exhortation? Well, the exhortation is this. Behold your God. That's the exhortation for your life. Go and see God. He has been revealed to you this morning in Isaiah 43. And it's your calling now to, to sink into those words, to grab hold of them and not let go of them because there's salvation in this moment for your soul in these words. Will you not see God today? And tomorrow, will you not go back to the Scriptures and see Him again and again and again? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are amazed at who You are. You are the only God, and we rejoice in You this morning. We rejoice in your purposes. We rejoice in your power. We rejoice in your love. We rejoice in your presence. 
And we pray now, give us open eyes that we might be refreshed and sustained. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.